Hi, I'm James. And I'm Anthony. And this is Words and Numbers, presented by FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. God help me, Ant. <laughs> want to know what's, what's new and exciting in Let your world show, this week? Yeah, Let me show I do. you what's new. I, I actually don't want it, but I do. This is a mug that came to us, one of two. Kathleen Bailey and the good people at the Clay Cup in Neosho, Missouri, sent us some beautiful mugs that had the Words and Numbers logo on them. And then today in the mail, I got socks. I have no idea who sent them to me, but they're socks with the Words and Numbers logo on them. Well... I didn't get any socks. I don't know what to say about that, but... They like me better. Shut up. I do know that I'm <laughs> supposed to be asking, what's new and exciting in your world this week, Ant? At which point I come to be quiet, and then you tell me something that's neither new nor exciting. Well, anything to keep you quiet. Here's my thing that's new and exciting. Those of us who have used computers for decades will remember the open source, closed source wars for operating systems. Linux was the poster child for open source. The code for the operating system was transparent. Anyone could read, modify, distribute changes to it. Importantly, the software was free. Now, in contrast, Windows was the poster child for closed source. The code for the operating system was proprietary. Only Microsoft could read and change it, and they charged a pretty penny for it. Microsoft defended the closed source model, saying that it allowed them to control the operating system's quality and features. And further, there's no way Linux could survive as a free operating system. Well, turns out they were wrong on that count. But more than that, if you fast forward a couple of decades, in a recent interview, one of Microsoft's senior lawyers, Brad Smith, looked back on the open source, closed source wars and said that Microsoft was on the wrong side of history. Linux proved less buggy, faster, and though possibly because it was less popular, also less susceptible to viruses. Here's why this is interesting. Nearly 20,000 programmers worked on Linux and they worked on pieces of it they found as users that were important. Much fewer than that worked on Windows. Further, Windows developers had to have their projects, whatever changes they wanted, okayed through various layers of management. In short, the difference between open source and closed source is similar to the difference between free markets and centrally planned markets. In a free market, billions of people make individual decisions that contribute to the evolution of the markets. Importantly, each decision maker has a strong incentive to make good decisions because he has to live with the consequences of the decisions. But in a centrally planned market, a small set of central planners makes decisions for others. Importantly, they don't make decisions on the basis of what is important to the people, but what is important to the central planners. In Linux versus Microsoft, Encyclopedia Britannica versus Wikipedia, Android versus iOS, and countless other situations, people seem to intuitively grasp that there's an importance to decentralized decision-making. But many also tend to throw those lessons out the window when thinking about markets. Well, that is interesting, Ed. I wonder, though, when Windows will finally be easy enough for regular people to use. It seems to have gotten better over the years, yeah? Yeah, it really has. But the interesting thing is Windows 10 is as user-friendly as the Mac was back in the 1980s. It's taken that long. That might be right. I just recently bought a second machine that has Windows 10 on it. And it's, from my perspective, not up to Mac standards. Hmm. 
but it's much, much closer than anything else I've ever seen out of Microsoft. Yep. So I've got a fair amount of faith moving forward that maybe things are going to work out a little better if they can compete again on certain metrics. And that's kind of interesting because Apple's model was also centrally planned. That's not an open source system. So in that sense, they'd suffer from the same problem that Microsoft suffered. And I guess the take-home message there is perhaps central planning doesn't always fail. But if it does succeed, it's a happy circumstance. There's nothing inherent in the system that would suggest that it would succeed better than decentralized decision making. Most interesting for me this week, I don't know if you caught the headline yet, but Elon Musk's SpaceX is going to launch a couple of people into orbit in nine days. Really? No, I didn't know that. I think we've really crossed a threshold here. And I, like everybody else, will sit back and watch as this unfolds. But I'm kind of interested to see what can be accomplished with private enterprise in outer space. And you and I have talked about this a number of times in a number of different ways. But here we have a concrete example of a rocket that's going up. It's bringing some people into orbit, and we're all going to see how that goes. Yeah. Isn't that something? Who are the people that are going up? Astronauts. They've got their own astronauts. They're doing this for real. This is not like citizen passengers or something. I don't know what the full crew looks like, huh. but it is a crew on a vessel. That's astounding. Yeah, it really is. I remember, and I'm sure you do too, when I was a young man, I think either just in high school or just prior to watching the first space shuttle go up, thinking, wow, that looks like an airplane, and I bet we're in a brand new kind of era here. Yeah. And then nothing for a very long time. That was just the end point of that evolution. And I'm enough of a nerd to say I'm kind of excited to see what happens. Well, of course, with your Star Trek dorkitude, you'd, you'd be very interested. <laughs> well, if Elon Musk is listening, we'd love to have you come on and talk about property rights on Mars, because that's going to become an important thing, like it or not. For the love of God, can you get <laughs> off this topic? Elon Musk should come on, and we would love to talk to about a number of things with him. Not that but a number of other things that are much more interesting. I think that is going to be a key question, because if we get that wrong, it's going to mean the difference in colonizing Mars sooner rather than later, and sooner versus later could mean decades. Sure, but we're going to get it wrong. Somebody's going to go to Mars and plant a, a nation's flag on it and declare that it's now whatever, probably China, it's their property. And of course, we're going to get this wrong. We always get this wrong. That, of course, Ant, brings us to the foolishness of the week. Bill de Blasio. What's he done? Mayor of New York City. I thought City. he was done no, messing the, around with things. The correct question is, what has he done again? What has he done more? Not what has he done simply? He has declared that even though some things are opening, if you happen to go to a beach and you happen to go swimming at the beach, he is ready to have police officers extract you from the beach and have you arrested because reasons coronavirus etc cetera, etc cetera. so we can't have people swimming so i can't be on a beach where i'm separated from other people without being put in a cage where i'm in close proximity to people no 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 you've got it wrong apparently you can be on the beach where you're separated from people you just can't go swimming for some reason wow that's weird the authoritarian in him is strong, yeah. and I think we're going to have to watch the people of New York City deal with that one way or the next. But as you and I have pointed out, when you have single-party rule, as we generally have in New York City, certain unpleasant realities tend to emerge. And one is that the people in charge see no outer bounds to their authority. 
And I think that describes Bill de Blasio almost perfectly. You've talked about the problems of single party rule with respect to New York and also with respect to California. We'll get to California in the bonus material. But do we have any examples of single party rule problems in the other direction where it's the Republicans? Yeah, I think in my last state of Utah, you get single party Republican rule there. And there, the Republican Party is mired in the LDS church. Hmm. So you get all kinds of religious things that play out in the public space through the political process. So yes, you, you absolutely get it in both directions. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's not a political party problem. It's a single rule problem. Yeah, of course it is. And it just so happens that in a time like this, where we're buttoning things down, Democrats, for whatever the reason, seem to be more in love with authoritarianism than their Republican counterparts. I don't quite know what to make of that. I do know that that shifts historically over time in the country. Don't expect that always to be the answer, but it's clearly the answer now. Clark Neely is back with us this week. Clark is the vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute and author of Terms of Engagement, How Our Courts Should Enforce the Constitution's Promise of Limited Government. Hi, Clark. How you been? I've been great. Thanks so much. People will remember last time we had you on, you said something that Ant and I rarely say. You said, let's assume good faith on the people who are working in the public space to deal with the coronavirus. Do you remember having said that? Yes, I think they're going to make me regret it, but I do remember. (laughs) Well, I don't know, because I have to admit at the time, I agreed with you pretty quickly. I thought we did have to assume good faith. And I don't think it's really any surprise that after a couple of months under house arrest, some bad actors are starting to emerge. So I think, yeah, let's still maybe assume good faith on almost everyone's part. And the thing that caught my eye in the last couple of days, maybe the last week or so, is the way that law enforcement, mostly in American cities, mostly in New York City, have been going about their business with getting on people who are not properly socially distanced I think any reasonable person is starting to see a pattern emerge, and it's starting to look a lot like stop and frisk used to be. It's a law that seems to be universally applicable, but oddly, where the rubber meets the road, it's always the same kind of people that get pinched. And I'm wondering if you've been paying attention to these sorts of things. I have, and I think you're exactly right. The unfortunate truth of the American criminal justice system is that anytime you increase the number and or scope of criminal laws, that translates directly into a higher number of black and brown bodies behind bars. It just does. That's sort of one of the iron laws of American criminal justice. And even if we might be prepared to presume a greater amount of good faith than we were in the past under the present circumstances, that iron law is not going to change. And if you empower and incentivize law enforcement personnel to involve themselves further in our lives, including, for example, by telling us that we can't congregate or chasing people off a basketball court, that's not going to translate one for one into even-handed enforcement. It's almost certainly going to be the politically disenfranchised and people of color who are going to bear the brunt of that, just as they bear the brunt of every single criminal justice policy in history. If you don't mind, I'd like to read a very brief paragraph that was published in the New York Times May 13th. So this is a couple of months after we've really been involved with the lockdown. We'll leave a link to this article in the show notes for you. Those calls grew louder after police released data on summonses and arrests over the past week that showed more than 90% of people arrested and 82% of those who received summonses for offenses related to the pandemic have been black or Hispanic. 90%, 82%. 
it's hard to put lipstick on that pig. If you're going to engage in dodgy enforcement tactics and enforce dodgy enforcement priorities, such as low-level drug possession or distribution that doesn't hurt anybody, or weapons charges for carrying without a license, which lots and lots of people do, or social distancing violations. You want to make sure that you target those enforcement efforts against populations that have the least ability to push back effectively, whether in court or through the political process, and guess which populations those are in this country. People respond to incentive, including people who work in law enforcement, and they don't want a hassle. And the best way to ensure you don't get a hassle is if you're going to enforce fundamentally stupid laws against people, make sure they're people who can't push back. James started off comparing this to stop and frisk. What's been bothering me about this weaponization of social distancing laws is even after COVID goes away, if indeed there is such a thing, there will always be some other virus out there. The next thing that comes along, I could easily see mayors and governors wanting to hang on to this power and use it repeatedly. Let me be a voice of optimism here. I find myself cast into this role again, and it's somewhat unfamiliar to me, but I'll try to roll with it. (laughs) I think that there's a real opportunity on the horizon here, and it's this. We are going to be in a desperate need of finding ways to jumpstart the engine of economic prosperity. And I think that that may apply the requisite amount of pressure to cause us to go back and discover one of the central genius ideas that the founders of this country had, which is to have the states be individual laboratories of democracy. That's a term the Supreme Court has used before to describe the idea that instead of having one-size-fits-all policies crammed down our throat from Washington, that each state have broad leeway to try different mixes of policies on all sorts of issues, taxation, criminal law, education, and so forth. And I think that we're going to see a real opportunity as the pandemic begins to recede and states begin competing with each other to attract business and capital to help them jumpstart their own economies, I think there will be considerable pressure on states to come up with a mix of policies that is most attractive to productive entrepreneurs and others to attract people to those states to help them jumpstart their economies. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I'm saying I think we can be reasonably optimistic that at least some states will see here an opportunity that they will seize. And we're going to see some, I think, very exciting and innovative opportunities and policies on offer in some of the more forward-thinking states like Texas uh, and Texas. (laughs) Texas and Texas. I'm deeply afraid that you said exactly what you mean there and that we're not looking at a number of states right now rushing into that breach. Nonetheless, I'm with you on thinking that this does afford us a certain kind of opportunity, but it doesn't really speak to any kind of remediation that we might want to see into the unequal application of the law. I'm wondering how we even start to approach that, because it seems that we're always right back to the same place over and over and over again. We just put stop and frisk to bed, right? That finally got settled up in a relatively good way. And here we are again, and we see the same exact thing. If you would, Clark, just take a minute and explain to our listeners what stop and frisk is or was. Yeah, so stop and frisk is a policy that's most usually associated with New York City because they were pretty aggressive about this a few years ago. And essentially what it means is that the police are simply not only empowered, but encouraged to racially profile, to just basically throw random young black men up against the wall, pat them down, 
feel in their pockets and any backpacks or other containers that they may be carrying to see if you can feel anything illicit. It could be anything from a weapon like a gun or a knife. Folding knives, by the way, are illegal in New York if they can be opened with the flick of a wrist. That's insane, but true. Or drugs, drug paraphernalia, etc. Basically, it's just a fishing expedition. And as James alluded to earlier, it's certainly not randomly targeted. It's typically focused on black and brown people in cities. So stop and frisk just refers to a policy where the police go out on a fishing expedition, throw young black men up against the wall, pat them down without probable cause or reasonable suspicion, which means that it is unconstitutional. But as long as they can count on judges to look the other way when the constitutional problems are identified by defense counsel, which they can, then these policies can work because basically it's just about getting people off the street and exerting control. And it's a pretty effective tool of control. So does social distancing now become the replacement for stop and frisk? Yes. Well, a replacement supplement. Any time that you give police the ability to involve themselves in people's day-to-day activities, it doesn't matter. I mean, think about it this way. The moment that you get into a car, essentially the Fourth Amendment is for all practical purposes suspended for two reasons. First, because traffic codes are so complex that it's virtually impossible to operate a motor vehicle for more than 30 seconds or so without violating some ticky-tacky provision of the local code that you probably don't even know about. And second, because, and this is absolutely insane but true, because of a 1996 case called United States versus Wren, police are actually allowed to engage in pretextual traffic stops. In other words, if a police officer wants to pull you over for driving while black, which is blatantly unconstitutional, even though it happens all the time, all he has to do is just follow your car until he observes one of these ticky-tacky traffic violations, and then he can say that he pulled you over for that violation, even if it's a complete falsehood and he never would have pulled you over but for the fact that you were driving while black. The Supreme Court in this 1996 case called Wren endorsed this, or at least put its imprimatur on this practice by saying that it is not for judges and courts to ever inquire into the true subjective motivations for why a police officer performed a traffic stop, and that's going to translate perfectly into social distancing. Police, if they want to come up and hassle a group of people based on the characteristics like skin color or socioeconomic status, they will be permitted to offer pretextual justifications such as, well, I saw more than 10 of them congregating and that's why I initiated this encounter, even if the true reason is basically I saw 10 black kids hanging out in a park and I wanted to see what was up. Supreme Court will certainly rubber stamp that under this horrific 1996 precedent called Wren. And we should be discouraged. We should expect more from our courts, but they don't deliver. All right, Clark. I mean, this leaves us right where we're always left, though, right? When the Supreme Court finally rules on something, that's the answer we've got to live with. Absent another Supreme Court ruling or a constitutional amendment, neither of which is all that likely, here's the brave new world we've got. How do you even begin to address that? I'd like to push back against that. I think we've got to be careful about letting legislators off the hook too easily here, because actually they do have the ability to mitigate some of the problems that we've been describing. They could absolutely pass a law making it impermissible to initiate law enforcement contact simply because they see more than 10 people congregating in a park. So they could have a law that says don't do it, but then they could also have a law that says that merely congregating in a park in groups of more than 10 does not provide a basis to initiate a law enforcement contact. So it doesn't have to just be a matter of constitutional law. Legislatures can absolutely 
act in this space. The problem is that they just don't. They've gotten so used to passing the buck and letting the courts pick up the slack that they've seemed to have more or less forgotten that all of this is within their purview and they're supposed to be vigilant in designing and implementing policies to protect our rights and our right, for example, to be left alone by police unless there's some bona fide law enforcement reason, I would say rather compelling law enforcement reason to involve themselves in our life. And it's not just the courts that sit idly by and allow this to happen. It's also policymakers and legislators. We should be bringing them in for some well-deserved criticism as well, in my opinion. Well, the whole thing is deeply pernicious, right? Because if you really think about it, if we go back to where you started, you started by saying, well, who are the police going to go after? They're going to go after the people who don't have the means to fight back. Okay, fair enough. Who are the politicians going to care about? They're going to care about the people who have the means to make a difference. Exactly the other group, right? We're talking about relatively affluent white America, who, incidentally, if you really think this one through, here in affluent white America, when people start complaining about other people not social distancing properly, we call them Karens, we laugh at them, and we move on. Because we know it's not really going to land in our backyard, but it is absolutely going to land in somebody else's backyard. And the entire system seems deeply set to work against their interest. Well, I think that's right. But I feel like it's incumbent on one of us to mention that there is a real risk here. There is a real hazard. Just because there have been epidemics before, there will be epidemics in the future. I think we should not fail to note that this is a particularly dangerous epidemic. We are still in the relatively early stages of trying to understand it, trying to understand what behaviors enable us to sort of best manage it. We're experimenting with different policies. Yes, many people are already exhausted from the kinds of social distancing and stay-at-home orders that are growing increasingly controversial. But I don't know about you guys, but my sister's a doctor. I have friends who are doctors. I've been reading up on this stuff. And the range of effects or the range of outcomes from people who contract this disease is terrifying. It goes all the way from asymptomatic. In other words, you have the virus in your system, but you are completely asymptomatic. It appears that this may be as many as half the people who contract it all the way at the other end of the spectrum to doctors walking out of ICUs saying, I have never seen anything do this to a human body, ever. And so we need to be, I think, mindful of the fact that we are confronting something that has now taken something like 80 or 85,000 American lives in a period of only a few months. And we do have to get back to something closer to normal. We have got to get the economy back online. We've got to allow people to go out and socialize for a variety of reasons, including simple mental health. But this is a really, really nasty and dangerous virus, and we also can't lose sight of that, in my opinion. What's bothering me here, and I'll stipulate the danger of the virus, what bothers me is that eventually that will fade away. And I have a very hard time believing that the exercise of these social distancing laws in the way they're being exercised will fade away nearly as easily. I think that's probably right, but this is a massively complicated risk analysis equation, in my opinion. I'm not going to be here to make a case for, hey, we need to err on the side of giving the government leeway and so forth. One thing that's very much on my mind is that I do think there's a significant difference with this epidemic compared to any one that has come before, and it's this. I think this is the first really serious and scary epidemic in human history 
where we not only had six and a half or seven billion human minds available to work on it, but we had the ability to share best practices and good information nearly instantaneously. I think there's no more powerful force in the universe than massive numbers of human minds working on the same problem at the same time with the ability to share information. And for that reason, I think we're going to have a much better handle on this situation in a month, two months, three months. And I think we shouldn't be locked into policies that make sense now because this is going to look a lot different in August, in September, in October. And we need to stay fluid. And I think we need to send a message to policymakers that they should be re-evaluating all of these policies, social distancing, what they open, what they close, etc., on a monthly, if not weekly basis. And if I leave us with nothing else, that's what I would say. We've got to remain flexible and we've got to have some confidence that the human spirit of ingenuity and inquiry is ultimately, if not going to defeat this virus, we are going to beat this thing into remission. And I would guess sooner rather than later. Clark, I'll allow you to become the unlikely voice of mild, deliberate reason here as we push a little further, because I find that I'm with Ant. I'm absolutely terrified of new standards not disappearing when circumstances warrant they disappear. What's your best guess as to what life looks like in a year? Do we look back on this period as, all right, we might have overreacted in a few ways, but by and large, we're all better off for it now? Or do you think we're still living with the residue of the problem that we created? There are two things that matter a lot. I think first, how enlightened are policymakers about exercising a light touch instead of a heavy touch and remaining supple and updating their policies as new information warrants. That's point one. But keep in mind, legislators can't order people to go back into restaurants, to go back into movie theaters or sporting arenas. That's up to individual people. And right now, the polling data that I'm seeing indicates that people are not eager to resume life as we knew it. They are eager to do some things. They're eager to go back to restaurants. They're eager to be out in the fresh air. I posted a picture on social media the other day of a public tennis court here in Arlington, Virginia, where I live, where they had taken the nets down and padlocked the door to the tennis court. That's ridiculous. It's idiotic. At the risk of sounding like I'm doing a bit here, let me say one other optimistic thing, which is this. As a constitutional litigator, I'm seeing something that absolutely flummoxes me, but at the same time tickles me to no end. And that is against all reason against all theology and geometry, as one of my favorite books, <laughs> Confederacy of Dunces, puts it, bizarrely, judges actually seem to be more engaged. There's a reason article that we can link to in the show notes where the Texas Supreme Court and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court both turned away challenges to certain business shutdown requirements and COVID-19 related restrictions. But in both cases, a significant number of state Supreme Court justices laid down a warning shot across the bow for policymakers and said, don't think that we are just going to let you guys get away with anything. You need to be careful about what you enforce in terms of freedom limiting policies. And just because we said no to these people today doesn't mean we're going to say no to these people tomorrow or next month. So you need to think carefully and don't think your leeway is inexhaustible because we are right there and we are going to be exercising our duty of judicial review. Who would have guessed that they would decide in the moment, in the midst of a pandemic, that's finally the moment when they're going to send a message to policymakers that there are limits on their ability to arbitrarily limit our freedom. And I think the messages were sincere. I don't have any explanation for why they chose this moment. But I think judges actually do recognize precisely the concern that you and Ant have put your finger on, which is if we are not vigilant, if we are not careful, a lot of this stuff could become cemented. A lot of this stuff could persist longer than it really has any business persisting. 
And against, again, all theology and geometry, it appears to be our friends on the judicial branch that have picked up on this and are sending signals to the other branches to be careful and be judicious. I don't even know what to make of it other than to say, wouldn't have predicted it, but I love what I'm seeing. Clark, on that confusingly optimistic note, I think that's all the time we've got this week on Words and Numbers, but you said something today that will resonate with me for the rest of the evening. One of your favorite books, A Confederacy of Dunces, and I think it's absolutely my favorite novel. So maybe we'll get together some one of these days to talk about the themes. Until next week, you can follow us on Twitter. All three of our handles will be in the show notes. You can well, go ahead and just get it over. With. Send us email. Words and numbers podcast at gmail.com. Send hate mail to James. You can even send hate mail for Clark. I'll pass it on. Any kudos you can address to me. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> just an idiot I, just, I don't know why you insist on doing these things but you do insist on it so there it is until next time you can join us over at words and numbers backstage the facebook group where the conversation continues uh, 11 1200 of our closest friends are over there these days come on by it's actually well worth the effort and please subscribe to our podcast on whatever player and service you use the more subscriptions we have the better we land in the rankings yeah, and as long as we're just going to keep making a big, long list here, join us on <laughs> Patreon and leave a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts. They love that sort of thing over there. Ant, Clark, we'll see you guys soon. See you next week. <laughs>